0: From CAFE and the Vox Media Podcast Network, welcome to Stay Tuned.
1: I'm Preet Bharara. He has no concept of legacy. How could a man who has gutted the Russian state for the last 22 years of all of their money, stole all of it, be caring about the legacy of of the country? He doesn't care about it.
0: That's Bill Browder. Listeners of this podcast will recognize him as the one-time major investor in Russia, who is now one of Vladimir Putin's most prominent and persistent critics and targets. For over a decade, Browder has been a political activist. He was the driving force behind the 2012 passage of the Magnitsky Act, the law that allows the U.S. government to sanction foreign nationals who have engaged in human rights abuses. Few people know more about Putin's financial secrets than Browder, who is now out with a new book on the subject. It's called Freezing Order, A true story of money laundering, murder, and surviving Vladimir Putin's wrath. This week, we get in the weeds on Putin, his strategy for maintaining power, his calculus on the war in Ukraine, and the ruthless ways he goes after his enemies. Plus, Browder's life threatening experiences as a target of the Russian dictator. That's coming up. Stay tuned.
2: Support for this podcast comes from Washington Wise, an original podcast from Charles Schwab. Decisions made in Washington affect your portfolio and your money every day. But what policy changes should investors be watching? Washington Wise is an original podcast for investors from Charles Schwab. The show unpacks the stories making news in Washington and how they may affect your finances and investments. Listen today at schwab.com slash Washington Wise. That's schwab.com slash Washington Wise.
0: Hey folks, before I get to your questions, a quick reminder, Stay Tuned is nominated for a Webby Award for the best individual podcast episode in the news and politics category. The episode features my conversation with the prosecutors who convicted former police officer Derek Chauvin for the murder of George Floyd. We discuss their decision-making in perhaps one of the most high-profile trials in U.S. history. Voting ends today, April 21st, so please head to cafe.com slash Webby to vote for Stay Tuned. That's cafe.com slash W-E-B-B-Y. Thank you, as always, for supporting our work. Now let's get to your questions. This question comes from Twitter user at rrednyc. Hashtag Ask Preet. Why did the Fed swoop in and take the NYC shooter prosecution? So I'm going to do what I seldom do, which is object to the form of the question, because among other things, it is argumentative and assumes facts, not in evidence. The suggestion is that the Feds, you know, big footed the local prosecutors. That's a common theme on television and in movies and in novels sometimes. And that's, you know, not usually how it works. You are, of course, referring to the mass shooting that took place last week uh, on a Brooklyn subway. The defendant was apprehended, Frank James, after he fired off at least 33 shots, striking 10 people. Thankfully, no one is in life-threatening condition. In the early aftermath of the shooting, there was lots of speculation about whether it was an act of terrorism, whether it wasn't. There was some reporting that it wasn't being treated as an act of terrorism. I don't know exactly what that means, but I guarantee you federal authorities were involved at the outset. That's always how it works when you have a thing like this, where it's not clear what the motivation for the act was. Ultimately, I'm sure there were appropriate state charges to be brought, but when can have an act like this that can be targeted with a particular federal statute that implicates terrorism. Generally speaking, the local authorities defer to the federal authorities. I think that's appropriate and that's tradition. The principal statute here that was used to charge Frank James is 18 United States Code 1992, which is styled as a statute to address, quote, terrorist attacks and other violence, against railroad carriers and against mass transportation systems on land, on water, or through the air. And although you might be wondering, well, why is it terrorism if Frank James was apparently acting alone, was not part of any organized terrorist organization? I think the feeling is, with respect to that statute and some other statutes, that if someone engages in conduct like James did, or allegedly did, and shoots again and again and again on a public transportation system, that inflicts fear and terror in the population. And it's a serious violation and needs to be treated accordingly. So fundamentally, I don't think the feds swooped in because the feds were already involved. They're always involved in things like this. That was true when I was the U.S. attorney in Manhattan as well. And I think it was the appropriate result. And we'll see how the case unfolds. This question comes in a tweet from user at Burt Guilfoyle, who asks, do congressional referrals to DOJ make a difference, e.g. from the January 6th committee, or does DOJ act independently regardless, based on publicly available information? So I've addressed this a little bit in the past, and I'm sure again, in the future, I will. My preliminary answer to your question is, those kinds of referrals don't make, I think, a dispositive difference one way or another, that DOJ acts independently not just based on publicly available information, but information that they derive from their own investigation if they think there's something worthy of investigating. The one exception that maybe confuses some people is there's a particular procedure and process in place for Congress or a committee of Congress to make a referral to the Department of Justice with respect to obstruction of Congress. We saw that with Steve Bannon. We saw that with Mark Meadows. Steve Bannon has been indicted. Mark Meadows has not been. But generally speaking, for any other kind of crime, ranging from fraud to, I suppose, seditious conspiracy, the Department of Justice is supposed to be looking at the world and looking at what's going on in the country and taking account of those things and conducting investigations with all their law enforcement resources and apparatus as they see fit, not necessarily because some political body has asked them to do so. Now, the debate here is, I think, a good-faith one. The debate is over the question of whether the 1-6 committee should make some kind of formal referral at the end of their inquiry with respect to, for example, Donald Trump, to the Justice Department. And there are two sides to the debate, and I respect and admire people on both sides, and they're friends of mine on both sides of the debate. On the one hand, there are some people who are saying, the January 6th committee must make the referral. It's what's right, it will put pressure on DOJ, and therefore, they must do it. There are other people who I also respect, who are, I think, arguing in good faith, that the one committee must absolutely not make the referral, because it will make any action by DOJ, look political, and it will invite criticism. And why do that? So unlike in some debates, I don't really feel strongly one way or another. I understand the arguments being made on both sides. I think they're they're both a little bit overwrought in my view. I don't think it matters much. You know, what we do know for sure is that the January 6th committee is going to have not only public hearings, but issue a very lengthy, detailed, thorough report. And in that report, it will be very clear from the facts that they lay out what that committee's opinion is on the question of Donald Trump or any other person's criminal liability. I don't know if they'll have a full legal analysis setting forth the elements of particular crimes, but I think it'll be very clear what they think. And from some of the remarks being made by members of the committee, I think they've already reached a conclusion that Trump and others are probably guilty of some crime. And whether or not they slap a cover letter on that report and send it directly to DOJ, with the instruction that please take a look at this, see if there's criminal liability here, whether they do that or not, I don't think really matters. And people are gonna make allegations of politics and political reaction, whether or not there's a formal referral or not. So I understand the debate. I respect both sides of the debate. I don't think it matters a whole hell of a lot. And I think the important thing is to see what the findings of the 1-6 committee are. Finally, as I mentioned last week, I thought it might be useful from time to time during the Q&A section of the program to answer some basic question about the law or about the courts, because I think we assume too much knowledge on the part of lay people who listen, who are thoughtful citizens and maybe could benefit from some more detailed explanation of some basic facts about the law. And so this week, I thought I would answer the question that I sometimes get, which is how many levels of courts are there? You know, we, we sort of talk about this court and that court, and maybe it's confusing to folks. So let me very quickly summarize how the levels of courts work, at least in the federal system. There are three levels of courts in the federal system. Every single judge in the federal system, at all three levels, is nominated by the President of the United States and is confirmed, or not confirmed, by the United States Senate. If they're confirmed, they have life tenure on the federal bench, and they can't be removed except by impeachment. The first level, and that's true in all court systems, is the trial court. The trial court, or the first entry point for a litigant, or a criminal defendant, or or a government prosecutor, is called the federal district court. When we talk about trials, when we talk about indictments, when we talk about all manner of hearings, we're always talking about the the federal district court. The Southern District of New York has a court and it's the federal district court. That's where generally people have access. It's not difficult to get access to the federal district court. Trials happen in the federal district court, not at the other levels of the judiciary. So that's the first level. The next level after the district court level are the circuit courts of appeal. In the federal system, There are 13 circuit courts of appeal, 12 related to regions, uh, and one called the Federal Circuit, which deals with specialized cases like patents and, and other kinds of things like that. I have practiced my entire career in the Second Circuit, which embraces the states of New York, Connecticut, and Vermont. Generally speaking, if you're the losing party in some fashion in the district court, you have a pretty much guaranteed right to appeal to the circuit court. Not in every circumstance, but generally speaking, you have pretty good access to the trial court, the district court, you have pretty good access to the courts of appeal. Then comes the heavy duty court, the highest court in the land that you're all probably much more familiar with, the Supreme Court of the United States. That court is very difficult to get access to, as we've discussed on the podcast and on the Cafe Insider many, many times. Whereas the district court will take all cases and controversies presented to it, may dismiss them if there's a lack of jurisdiction or some other procedural flaw. The Supreme Court takes very, very few of the cases that are sought to be presented to that body. So district court, circuit courts of appeal, and the Supreme Court. I think most states are set up the same way, obviously my familiarity with New York state. There's one peculiarity in New York state. It has like most judicial systems, three levels of courts, but they're named kind of funny. So in New York state, the lowest level court, the trial court is called Supreme Court, state supreme, which is very confusing for a lot of people if you haven't practiced in New York Why the lowest court is called the Supreme Court. So sometimes you'll see an article and it'll say something is pending in the Supreme Court. And I worry that that lay people will naturally think, well, wow, it's going to the most important court in the state. Not true. The second level of court in New York State is the appellate division. There are four appellate divisions in New York based on region. And the appellate courts in New York, just like the federal circuit courts, generally speaking, you have a right to appeal if you lose in the lower court. And then the highest court in New York State is called. The Court of Appeals. Go figure. Stay tuned. There's more coming up after this.
2: Support for this show comes from Washington Wise, an original podcast from Charles Schwab. Decisions made in Washington affect your portfolio every day. But what policy changes should investors be watching? Washington Wise, an original podcast for investors from Charles Schwab, tracks the stories making news right now and breaks them down for the average investor. Host Mike Townsend, Charles Schwab's Managing Director for Legislative and Regulatory Affairs, takes a nonpartisan look at the stories that matter most to investors. He explores topics like policy initiatives for retirement savings, taxes, and trade, inflation fears, the Federal Reserve, and how regulatory developments can affect companies, sectors, and even the entire market. In every episode, Mike and his guests offer their perspectives on how policy changes could affect what you do with your portfolio. Download the latest episode and follow at schwab.com/slash WashingtonWise or wherever you listen.
0: Hey, folks, we have an event coming up next Tuesday, April 26th at 6:30 p.m. Eastern. I'll be speaking with New York City Mayor Eric Adams for a live recording of Stay Tuned at the Cooper Union in Manhattan. Get your tickets for free at cafe.com slash events. That's cafe.com slash events, and tickets are free. I hope to see you there. My guest this week is my friend, Bill Browder. Once the largest foreign investor in post-Soviet Russia, Browder found himself in the crosshairs of Vladimir Putin in 2005, turning his life completely upside down. After Browder's lawyer, Sergei Magnitsky, was beaten to death in a Russian jail in 2009, Browder dedicated his life to exposing Putin's crimes and holding accountable those who profit from them. Bill Browder, welcome back to the show. What a treat to have you again. Great to be here. So I love having you every time you come on. There's a particular occasion. Last week marked the launch of your new book, Freezing Order, a true story of money laundering, murder, and surviving Vladimir Putin's wrath, which has done very well. It's a great book. I read it cover to cover. I think lots of people are buying it, and everyone who's listening within the sound of my voice should buy it and read it also, for a lot of different reasons. We'll talk about the relevance of it, particularly at this
1: moment, but it was great seeing you in New York briefly last week for your book launch. It was a great party and a great way to kick off the book, and also my um, my kids were there. Your kids were there. I, I enjoyed speaking to them very much. Let's start with something that you said, you gave a, a brief talk
0: at that event. And obviously, you know, you and I have been talking about this book for a while in different contexts. You've been writing it for three years and it comes out in week, I guess, five of this unprovoked war between Russia and Ukraine. So it has massive additional relevance than it might've otherwise had. Can you describe
1: that coincidence? So the book is, is a sequel to my first book my first book was about my career in Russia and ending up in trouble with Putin and and ultimately the murder of Sergei Magnitsky and getting the Magnitsky Act passed. And then this book was all about, for the last 10 years, going after the people who killed Magnitsky financially, because Sergei had discovered a massive financial crime, a $230 million crime. And one of the things I said to myself after he was killed was, was these people shouldn't be able to enjoy this money. Let's get governments to issue freezing orders over this money so they can not enjoy it, which is the name of the book, Freezing Order. And we we pursued this path of going and trying to find the money, and we found a lot of it, and we got various freezing orders in different countries. And the book describes how we found the money of these Putin cronies of the Putin regime, what methods they use to launder their money, and how they hide it in the West. And so I spent three years writing this book, and then six, seven weeks ago, Putin— invades Ukraine. And, and one of the things everyone wants to know is where does Putin keep his money? And so as close as anyone can come to answering that question, I've done it. And I've got a 350-page book going into the details. And and originally the book was supposed to come out in June. And I said to my publisher, I said, why are we waiting until June? You know, Every politician I know wants the answer to this question. I'm sure they'll all read this cover to cover. And so Simon and Schuster moved the publication up to um, last week. And here we go. So where does he keep his money? And you, you've addressed this before, I think, on this podcast. How much money is there? One of the things which is which is interesting is so we said, here's this $230 million crime. We investigated, investigated, and we found that, that a bunch of the money went to a bank called Dansky Bank in Estonia. They're an Estonian branch. And once we found that, we got all sorts of data and information and various leaks and so on. And then we started working with some journalists from various organizations in Denmark and and a big international NGO called the OCCRP. And we discovered when they got to work with their databases and the leaked data that the number wasn't 200 million, it was 230 billion of dirty money had flowed through the Estonian branch of this Danish bank, Danske Bank, which is effectively dirty money from Russia. And this is just one bank. One European mid-sized bank with one branch. And so I would guess, and based on capital flight numbers, that the total amount of money that's been stolen by Vladimir Putin and his cronies over a 22-year period is a trillion dollars. And we know how they laundered it. We know which banks it went through. And we know where some of it is. A lot of it is. And um, who holds this money ultimately for these people? It's these people known as the Russian oligarchs. The guys who you see um, on these big yachts and these big private jets and so on. Is your mindset, it's great that Western nations
0: are finally engaging on their own initiative in freezing orders and seizing property of oligarchs? Or are you somewhat annoyed that it took an unprovoked invasion of an innocent country to cause that to
1: happen? I would say annoyed is an understatement. I'm, I'm furious. I'm heartbroken. I mean, if we look back at how we dealt with Russia over the last 22 years, after Putin, actually, not Russia, but Putin, we've given him a pass at every step. The guy has done so many terrible things. He invaded another country, Georgia, nothing. At the time, President Obama said, you know, we urge all sides to restrain themselves. He took Crimea, no sanctions of any significance. He poisoned using a banned chemical nerve agent Novichok, a bunch of people in Salisbury, England, they had to close the whole city down for a week. It was a chemical weapon attack in the UK. And six months later, all these British people were going to the World Cup. We've basically given this guy a free pass at every step of the way. And every time I've been going around the world to parliaments and governments trying to get governments and everybody to be tough on on Putin, they look at me as I'm, I'm some type of party pooper. I'm an extremist, you know. Bill, interesting story. You know, we understand you have some issues. And and here yeah, we are. The guy killed your lawyer. Yeah. Uh, and here we are. And Putin is, is committing mass murder on a daily basis of innocent civilians. And we're watching it live on television. And I, I can't tell you how upset I am by this. And every day that I, I wake up and I just feel more upset.
0: You know, I've asked this question of a lot of people, including our mutual friend, Gary Kasparov. How is it that a guy who's always been thought of as savvy— And smart and shrewd in many circles, and I think in many Western circles, engaged in such a huge miscalculation. Is it because of what you've just said that at every juncture he took an aggressive step and a cruel step and no
1: one did anything about it? And he thought he could do whatever he wants, or something else? Well, we don't know what his calculation is yet. We're saying it's a miscalculation. And yes, he he certainly miscalculated. It hasn't gone according to plan, right? It definitely hasn't gone according to plan, but my analysis is something different. So why did he do this war? I believe this war comes back to that trillion dollars. that trillion dollars that was stolen should have been spent on health care and on education and roads and, you know, all the things that a government's supposed to do for its people. Instead, it went into the yachts and planes and villas and all this in Swiss bank accounts. And after a while, the Russian people got mad. And every time they got mad, what did Putin do to sort of deflect their anger? He started a war. The war in Georgia in 2008, I mean, you can look at the chart, his approval ratings skyrocket. The illegal annexation of Crimea and the invasion of, of eastern Ukraine in 2014, again, his approval ratings skyrocket. And then now, with this you know, murderous invasion, full-scale invasion of Ukraine, and the, his approval ratings skyrocket. His calculation is all about him being worried about getting kicked out by his people And so he maybe didn't miscalculate because his approval ratings are where he wants them to be so that he can be safely the leader of Russia and not have anyone challenge that. And yes, of course, it's very expensive now because of all these sanctions and money is being frozen. And yes, he lost 20,000 troops, but he doesn't care about 20,000 troops. And other nations are joining NATO now. And and he doesn't care about that either. That's, That's all for spin. He doesn't care about NATO. He doesn't care about European Union and Ukraine. He doesn't care about recreating the Soviet Union. Everyone says he's doing this for his legacy. That's complete nonsense. He has no concept of legacy. How could a man who has gutted the Russian state for the last 22 years of all of their money, stole all of it, be caring about the legacy of, of the country? He doesn't care about it. He's kind of like that. You remember that dictator from a country that used to be called Zaire? His name is Mobutu Seke who stole all the money from the country and took it down to the south of France, that's what Putin is. He's, he's not a patriot of any sort. He doesn't care about any of this stuff. Can you explain something to me? So he's been in power over two
0: decades. I believe you when you say he's stolen all this money. I think there's some consensus about that, the amount, you know, how many tens of billions maybe people can quarrel about. What is the point of having that much money? Obviously, he lives some a lifestyle of some opulence, if you see some of the photos that get taken of him. Is he thinking about having a lavish retirement somewhere? As
1: I've understood it, he's planning to die as the leader of Russia. What's the point of all those excess billions? Well, you speak as a man who hasn't stolen billions and- and
0: I have not. I've done many things, but I have not stolen billions.
1: Well, so it's impossible for you to empathize with him. So in Russia, you can't be the most powerful person without being the richest person. You have to be the richest, most ruthless, most powerful person. And you can't be one of the three- you have to be all three of the three. And so to answer your question, there is no Putin presidential library that he's going to retire to and give speeches or, you know, paint paintings or whatever. So it's status? It's a matter of status? It's just like you got to be the biggest, most everythingist person on the scene. Otherwise, people don't respect you. But what's weird about that is usually you do that ostentatiously, and he will deny it. He doesn't say, I have $200 billion dollars. He doesn't say it, but he has a $1.3 billion house on the Black Sea that that Alexei Navalny exposed. I've got a friend who owns a, a an unbelievably nice ski chalet in Switzerland. I won't say where to, to keep him safe. Putin wanted to buy it, and he kept on raising the price like five times the price to try to buy his ski chalet. Putin probably owns 200 properties around the world. He just, he, he loves to have all this stuff. It's highly ostentatious, and everybody in his circle knows about it for sure. You said something interesting and I've said this many times about the
0: oligarchs, right, in Russia, they only exist by the grace of
1: Vladimir Putin. What do you mean by that? Well, so, you know, a lot of people are thinking, maybe these oligarchs, if, if we just freeze their money, they're going to rise up and overthrow Putin. It's a complete wrong analysis because the oligarchs only exist and are only rich and are only free and effectively only alive at the pleasure of Vladimir Putin. At any moment, he can do anything he wants to them, And he has, on a number of occasions, to make the point. He put Khodorkovsky in jail for 10 years. Can you just pause and explain
0: who Khodorkovsky was? Because that's that's a great precedent. And every oligarch or
1: aspiring oligarch saw that example and learned something from it. So Mikhail Khodorkovsky, when Putin had come to power, was the richest man in Russia. He was the biggest oligarch. He owned the biggest oil company called Yukos. And he was fairly, what I would describe as, independently wealthy. He was talking to Western oil companies about mergers. He was talking about corporate governance and improving transparency. He was doing all sorts of stuff, which, you know, you might think of as being a smart thing to do if you're a billionaire oligarch. And he also criticized Putin. And so in retaliation, Putin had him arrested off his private jet in Siberia, brought back to Moscow, put on trial for tax evasion— and by the way, when in Russia, there's a 99.7% conviction rate in a criminal trial. There's no presumption of innocence. They just put you in a cage during the trial because that's where you're going to end up after the trial. And they allowed the television cameras to come in and film Mikhail Hordokovsky, the richest man in Russia, sitting in a cage. And so if, if you were, let's say, the 17th richest oligarch in Russia. You, you and, get the message. <laughs> you know, you turn on the TV and you see a guy far richer, far far more powerful than you you know, sitting in a cage, you know, what's your natural reaction? You don't want to sit in the cage yourself. And so all these other guys go to Putin and say, what do we have to do to not sit in a cage? And Putin said 50%. And that's where Putin's wealth comes from. And the oligarchs are all totally beholden to him. And if they didn't give him 50%, then he just took 100%. It's the most massive shakedown of modern times. Indeed. So then let me ask you the follow-up
0: question, which is, if it's the case that these sanctions and freezing orders against the oligarchs who are close to Putin are not in any way by your analysis
1: going to cause them to influence Putin to withdraw from Ukraine, what's the point? Ah, it's the 50% point. So very shortly after he launched the war, the EU, US, Canada, and the UK all sanctioned Vladimir Putin. That's very nice symbolically, but he doesn't hold any of the money in his own name. All the money is held in the name of people he trusts, who are these oligarchs, trustees, custodians, nominees, proxies. And so the oligarchs are the ones holding his money. And so if we're trying to starve him of his resources to execute this war, one of the main sources of offshore resources he has is his own money and potentially the money of the oligarchs if he needs it. So I would view the whole sanction program now as not to influence the oligarchs to rise up against him nor to change his mind. His mind is unchangeable. Once he started this war, he can only escalate. The point of these sanctions at this point is to completely and absolutely surround him and starve him of the money to continue buying bullets and missiles and everything else that he needs to kill Ukrainians. And so it's not a bank
0: shot, as some people analyze, that you put pressure on the oligarchs and then they will in turn put pressure on Putin. Does the fact that Putin know that his wealth is being his own wealth is being seized not just the oligarch's wealth but his own wealth does
1: that have some influence on him or not it infuriates him it's it's highly disrespectful and and i have always compared his sort of psychology to to that of the toughest guy in the prison yard nobody can like show him disrespect because if they do then everyone will disrespect him and all of a sudden he won't be in his tough place anymore and so the fact that we have sanctioned him and frozen his assets through the oligarchs is a sign of immense disrespect on a worldwide basis. And that's helpful. It's not going to change his mind, but it's important for us to stand up to this guy. He's got to be punished in every way possible, and he has to be deprived of of his resources. And this is a good way to do it, for sure. You've said a number of things about Putin's mismanagement of his country, including the theft of
0: of a lot of its money. But another thing you said recently that's interesting, with respect to everyone's expectation— that the Russian army was powerful and modern and effective.
1: And it turned out that that was not so. You said you weren't surprised. Explain why. What I've seen in all of this investigation we've done and everything that we've been involved in in the last 10 years is that everything is being stolen. Just starting with the Magnitsky case, where Sergei Magnitsky discovered $230 million of Russian government money was stolen. He exposed it. And we expected that he would be sort of given a pat on the back by Putin for you know, finding a major crime against the government. Instead, he was arrested, tortured for 358 days and killed. And when we then wanted to, you know, go after his his killers and the people who stole the money, Putin then promoted them, gave them state honors, and then put Sergei Magnitsky on trial in the first ever trial against a dead man in the history of Russia. And so it showed Putin very clearly as as a total, absolute criminal. But now link link that to the failure of the Russian army. So everything in Russia is operated in this in the same criminal way. Every ministry, it's like the Sopranos. You have, you know, the Philadelphia mafia and the New Jersey mafia and all this kind of stuff, and they feed up to the mafia boss, who's Vladimir Putin. And so in this case, it's the Ministry of Finance, the Ministry of Fuel and Energy, the Minister of Telecom. They all do their own stealing and then send money up to Vladimir Putin. And guess what? In the Ministry of Defense, In the army, they do the same damn thing. And so, you know, they're selling the gas out of their tanks. They're selling the parts off of their planes. They run MiGs in in Russia. And India has got an air force with a lot of MiGs. Their air force is really, really good. They know how to run their planes. And guess what? They're buying all the spare parts off of the parts being cannibalized out of Russia. You know, the, the wages for the soldiers are being stolen by their bosses. Every step of the way, the whole thing is just hollowed out by dirtiness, corruption, and so on. And so what we have is just a Potemkin army. And that's been very good in one sense because it's, it's led to the Ukrainians who care profoundly about their country and their freedom and their land and their children to be able to be outmanned and outgunned, but not really because the, the Russians were running out of gas as they were running their tanks into Ukraine. Does anything about the unfolding of this war surprise you? Well, the only thing that surprises me is the fact that he did did what he did. So I've watched Putin for the last 22 years, and I've been in a real full frontal conflict with him for the last 15 years. And everything he's always done up until now has been plausibly deniable. So when Russia invaded Georgia, you know, there was a whole big thing where they say, well, Georgia fired first. We were just fighting in self-defense. When they took Crimea, they said, these weren't our soldiers. These were little green men. They were, you know, Russians on vacation. They somehow were able to convince the world and the international press corps to describe the people in eastern Ukraine as separatists. They weren't Russians. They were separatists. When they hacked the U.S. elections, they say, it wasn't us. When they um, sent guys to um, Salisbury, they were there for the cathedrals, you know, for the poisoning. And so everything that Putin has done has always been this weird, plausibly deniable thing. And why did he do that? Because he always wanted to have one foot in the civilized world while he had one foot in the criminal world. And so, you know, he wanted to show up at the World Economic Forum in Davos and at the G20 and and host international sporting events at the same time as he was planning assassinations of his enemies and plotting all sorts of other malicious activities. And so it it surprised me that, that he would just basically put both feet into the criminal world. And and leading up to it, I, I always thought, no, no, he must be bluffing. He must be bluffing. You know, get every world leader to come to kiss his ring in Moscow, and then he'll get some concession from us and declare victory. I, I was surprised that he, that he decided to just go full on and just damn the torpedoes and go straight into it the way he did. That That, that was different than anything else he did before. Was it really different? Or did he
0: think in his mind, that's aged somewhat, and he's had a track record of successful examples of plausible deniability, as you say. Do you think he initially thought that he would be able to do the same thing here, denazification and styling this as
1: some defensive act, but the West got the better of him on it? I think to a certain extent that is true. I mean, the one thing that that President Biden and uh, Prime Minister Boris Johnson did very effectively was for two months before they just shared all the intelligence with the world on a daily basis on the nightly news. They said, Russia's going to invade, Russia's going to invade, Russia's going to invade. And Putin had a big plan to say that this was going to be self-defense and, and all sorts of other nonsense, which what didn't work with anybody, didn't work with the Germans or the French or, or the Hungarians even, who were the biggest Putin acolytes in, in Europe. Everybody saw this as what it was, which is a naked aggression against a an innocent sovereign state. And so, yes, he was definitely played by Biden and by Boris Johnson, and whatever he had planned didn't work. But still, I mean, it's just so brazen what he's done. You say something that I've been thinking about and talking
0: about with other guests as well. When all is said and done, do you, do you think that the most brilliant stroke on the part of the United States, and you also mentioned the UK, was this real-time
1: release of Intel? Definitely. Definitely. It, it, it was the most important thing because all of the apologists couldn't hang on whatever his excuse was because it was just so feeble. That was a world-changing, future-changing decision and because that may give the Ukrainians a chance. But by getting everybody on the same side, or all the people that matter, I should say, on the same side, and we can talk about the ones who aren't on the same side, but to get all of Europe on the same side is something that has never been done before. I want
0: to ask you about something you said
1: a few minutes ago that bothers
0: me. You you talked about all the times that Putin has done some outrageous thing to change the subject. It's been in the service of increasing his popularity. And I guess one question is, why does he need to worry if he has a tight grip on power? The second thing is, do you think that's really true now? You know, one would like to think that there are a sufficient number of Russians who are clear-eyed and are getting some outside information and particularly relatives of the soldiers who are dying by the thousands, that there's some undercurrent of antipathy towards Putin. And even that goal of trying to be more popular in his own country has failed. What's your real sense of the popular feeling
1: about Putin at this moment? I think he's really popular at this moment. I I think that, you know, there's a lot of families. There's 20,000 mothers who have lost their sons and various other family members and friends that are furious. But, I mean, I've seen it with my own eyes. People who, all you have to do is, is look at some videos of, like, you know, interviews of random people on the street. And they're all brainwashed. And many Russians believe their government, that the war was forced on them by Ukraine, backed by NATO.
2: I know the truth. This was a forced measure on our side. After what Russia went through in World War II, it's madness to believe we want war.
1: Those aren't actors? They're not actors. Now, these are people being approached, you know, Westerners approaching them saying, what do you think about this war? And these people are just like, the Russians have somehow like degraded the Ukrainians to subhumans, sort of like what they did in Rwanda to do the genocide, where everybody just says it's okay to, to do these terrible things, and it's not made up. I'll tell you a very interesting little anecdote. You know, we all think, well, the information must be getting through, people must be understanding what's going on. Because you know, the internet still works and there's still ways of watching things and hearing things and seeing things. And I I was with my wife who who is from Russia. We met in Russia and we were coming back from a trip and she was reading to me the headlines, the Russian headlines, which are just completely untrue and the opposite of, you know, what's really going on. And I said, you know, this is really interesting stuff. Can you can you just like text me some of these headlines? Because I'd like to put them. Onto my Twitter feed, so people can see what the Russians are reading for themselves. And so we we got home from this trip. I sort of forgot about the, my request for her to send any of that stuff. And an hour or two later, I was um, I was working out on the and on my elliptical machine, and just sort of um, and I had my phone on the machine, and I wasn't really paying attention. And I saw all these news alerts coming through, or not news alerts, but alerts coming through, saying Ukrainians take fifteen thousand hostages, and. And my heart sunk. I wasn't really paying attention. My heart sunk thinking to myself, you know, the Ukrainians have had such a good story up until now. And all of a sudden, they're taking hostages and doing all this terrible stuff. And then I realized that it was actually my wife just sending me these Russian headlines. But even me, you know, not really, you know, sort of looking at it out of the corner of my eye, reading these... um, these headlines, I had an emotional reaction. And now imagine you're in Russia. You get this stuff bombarded at you 24 hours a day. Everybody you know, like, and respect has the same information, have the same opinions. And, th- and that's how you end up with this 83% approval rating.
0: We'll be right back with more of my conversation with Bill Browder after this. I think an, an accurate way to describe both your writing, your two books, and what you have dedicated yourself to, the the theme of your work and your writing is justice and the seeking of justice. But within that, I think there are two sub-themes that relate to the concept of of finding justice. One is impunity. Um, I was thinking about that word and I realized you can't spell impunity without Putin. And there's something about, you know, certain kinds of transgressions that are different when they are done with just absolute extreme impunity. And that's what happened in the case of your lawyer who was killed and lots of other things that you write about in your books and that we've been talking about. And the other thing, the counterforce to impunity is courage. It's not just the laws. It's not just the law books. It's not just the courts, but extreme personal courage on the part of brave people. And I put you among them. I want to talk about some of those brave people. So people are aware of, and you've summarized in this conversation, the story of Sergei Magnitsky, in whose name you do all this work. There's another person who was killed, who you've been talking about recently, Boris Nemtsov, who's a Russian, critic of Putin. Can you
1: remind folks what happened to him? Yeah, Boris Nemtsov, he was once the deputy prime minister of Russia under Yeltsin. And then he saw what what I saw and what most Russians saw of Putin. And and he decided, unlike most other people in the political sphere— Instead of enriching himself at the troth, he thought it was just wrong and bad what what Putin was doing, and, and at a great personal cost, he became the leader of the opposition. He said, "You know, we, we can't tolerate this. This stealing has got to stop." And moreover, Boris became my partner in lobbying the Magnitsky Act around the world as we as we went to try to get um, sanctions placed on Putin and his cronies. Boris showed up in the U.S. Congress at the Canadian Parliament, the British Parliament, all these parliaments. And when I was there saying, telling the Magnitsky story and all the terrible things Putin was up to, Boris was there giving the Russian perspective, and he called it the most pro-Russian law ever passed, the Magnitsky Act, because it sanctioned the people stealing from the Russian people. And Boris, um, he did this at, at a great personal risk. I mean, I, I, I mean, the Russians have been after me in all sorts of ways, but he was living in Moscow. And... One night in, in late February 2015, he was walking across the bridge in front of the Kremlin after a dinner with his girlfriend, and he was shot five times in the back and killed. Right in the shadow of the Kremlin. This is a place where they have—it's the. It's probably the most heavily surveilled CCTV security camera. Yes, I was going to say, Bill, surely this was captured on video, no? Well, it just so happened, according to the Russian authorities, that all the video cameras were down— for maintenance at that moment in time. <laughs> it's laughable when they come up with those types of excuses, but um, that's how they do stuff. And Putin ordered the hit. I mean, it's obvious. It's, it's so clear that Putin ordered this hit. And he killed Boris Nemtsov in front of the Kremlin <laughs> in cold blood. Do you have a, a view as to
0: why it is sometimes he offs people uh, by means that have plausible deniability, like poison? And
1: sometimes he has people shoot them in the back. He always does this in a way so that he can say, it wasn't me, but at the same time, stare everybody down and say, it was me. So he wants his the apologists and the appeasers in the West who are enjoying doing business with him to say, there's no evidence. But at the same time, he wants all the other opposition politicians in Russia to say, oh, my God, this is what happens. I better leave the country. I better moderate my behavior. I better not say these things anymore because I don't want to be shot five times in the back like he was. That's his way of governing is by, is by picking the, the biggest target out, doing something terrible to them, and then staring down the rest at the same time snickering and say, it wasn't me. But sometimes, and maybe there's no logic or rhyme or reason with respect
0: to certain people like Putin, sometimes he doesn't kill the person. Alexei Navalny remains
1: alive. Do you have any explanation for that? Well, he intended to kill him. So Lexi Navalny is is like Boris Nemtsov, perhaps even became more popular in Boris Nemtsov because he was an expert at using social media, YouTube, Twitter, Instagram, in putting out all the, Putin's crimes and the crimes of the regime. And he, he even put out all the details on Putin's $1.3 billion palace on the Black Sea. And... Um, Putin hates this guy and, and understood that that Alexei Navalny could very well be, if there was a free election, could be the next president of Russia. And so Alexei was in Siberia on a, some type of campaign trip, and Putin had a bunch of um, Novichok, this um, chemical nerve agent, placed in his underwear as Navalny was leaving to go on an airplane to Moscow. And, and it got absorbed in his skin as the plane took off, and he started having convulsions, and, and they were up in the air. And it was a five-hour flight to Moscow, and, and um, if the flight had gone all the way to Moscow, he would have died. But it was just the pilot decided to bring the plane down in another town in Siberia, um, in Omsk, Siberia. They bring the plane down in Omsk. The ambulance crew hasn't been given an instruction to let Alexei die. They give him some atropine, which is a, uh, an antidote, and he's still v- extremely gravely ill, but he doesn't die. And then his wife comes to Omsk and, and demands that he's allowed to be um, uh, medevact. and they eventually get him to Berlin, where where he spends three weeks in a coma. And then he he overcomes this unbelievable poisoning assassination attempt, and and then Putin tried to keep him from coming back to Russia by saying that he had violated his parole because they had had charged him on some trumped up thing a few years before. And he was supposed to be meeting with his parole officer. He couldn't meet with his parole officer because he was in a coma from Putin's assassination attempt. And this is, this is a, a mark of unbelievable bravery. Alexei, who's in his mind, his duty to his country was greater than his personal fear about his freedom or his life. And he gets on a plane from Berlin back to Moscow. And then what do they do? The moment he hits the ground, they arrest him. And he's now sitting in a prison. And they've sentenced him to another nine years in jail. What Putin doesn't seem to understand is that, yes, Alexei is not physically free, but he, he's now been elevated to the level of Vladimir Putin. And should Vladimir Putin ever misstep at any point along the way, and there's every possibility he will based on what he's doing right now, Alexei Navalny is, is the president in waiting. So there's another person, not
0: quite as well known as Alexei Navalny, who follows a similar pattern. And I've, I know that he's an associate of yours. He was a very close associate of Boris Nemtsov. And that's Vladimir Karamurza, who you should tell a little bit of the story so people know who he is. And he's in your book, obviously. But he's somebody who was also poisoned, not once, but twice. And a few weeks ago, this is not in your book because it's too recent. Tell folks what happened a few weeks ago when Russia
1: invaded Ukraine with respect to Vladimir Karamurza. So Vladimir Karamurza was the protege of Boris Nemtsov. Boris Nemtsov was the godfather of one of his children, and he was the political protégé. He's a truly unbelievable young man, incredibly articulate, speaks a number of different languages fluently, is a historian by training. And Vladimir, in addition to Boris, was also accompanying me to various parliaments lobbying for the Magnitsky Act. And and he's truly beloved by anybody who meets him, and and particularly all these foreign parliaments. When they heard this young man speak— and he spoke so passionately and so articulately about the crimes of the Putin regime and the need for sanctions and his hope for a, a fair and free Russia. You couldn't not want to do what he asked you to do because it was just so compelling. And he was with me at all these different Magnitsky um, lobbying events. And and he was in Russia after Boris Nemtsov was killed. He went back to Russia and they poisoned him same way as they did with Alexei Navalny. And I was deeply involved with his wife and with, with his friends and trying to figure out what he had been poisoned with. And and the doctors gave him a 5% chance of living. and And somehow we thought for sure he was going to die. And then somehow he was able to overcome the poison and eventually clear it from his system and recover. In the process, by the way, I should point out to folks, that's
0: one of the craziest parts of your book. When you describe that ordeal
1: and having to Figure out a way to smuggle out blood samples and get him treatment. It's really something. He had acquired a British passport, having studied at Cambridge and various other places. So he was a dual citizen, Britain and Russia. And the British government did absolutely nothing for him. We were trying to get them to help us with the blood samples. They wouldn't. They they basically said, "Doesn't matter." And uh, that was really an ugly part of the story and something when when he and I talk about it. Something that really upsets him is how badly he was treated by the British government, even though he is a British citizen. The other really ironic part of the story is that the person that saved him in the end was the Russian doctor. We tried to get him evacuated from Russia. He was just too ill to be evacuated. But a Russian doctor decided that you know he wasn't under instructions to kill him, and so he saved him. And so Vladimir, he, he was terribly disabled after this. He had to learn to walk again and eat and talk and everything. He had strokes. It was just terrible in his mid-30s. But he was able to rebuild his strength, and he's such a patriot, like Alexei Navalny, that he went back to Russia afterwards, and then they poisoned him again, and again he survived. And, and what makes this story truly crazy and, and, and remarkable and, is that Russia invades Ukraine, and Vladimir uh, sent me an email saying he's coming through London, where I live. And I say, fantastic. I'm, I'm actually, I said, I'm giving a speech at a, uh, at a fundraiser for, to help Ukrainian refugees Maybe you can come along and share a few words yourself. And so he came and and talked about the future of Putin and how Putin didn't have a future. And, you know, I I told my story. And then we had, we got together with our wives and had dinner afterwards. And and I said, are you coming to my book party in Washington? Because he has, his wife lives in Washington. And he said, yeah, I'm definitely coming. I can't wait. He said, but I'm going to Moscow first. And I said, no, you can't. You can't go to Moscow. He said, I said, they'll kill you. They've already tried killing him twice. I said, Vladimir, you you have to not go to Moscow. You have to not go. And he said, if I'm an opposition politician and I'm asking the Russian people to stand up to Vladimir Putin, how can I do that if I'm too afraid to go back to my own country? And I I was really emphatic, I mean, to the point of really, you know, almost, you know, burning my friendship with him because I was so concerned. But he went and he carried on talking and he gave an interview to CNN where he calls Putin on CNN a murderer. And an hour later, he gets arrested and he's in prison right this minute. It's terrifying. Are you able to be in contact with him? I am uh, through his wife, who who is able to speak to him once a day, and he's in good spirits. He wrote a a beautiful message to read out at my book party um, in Washington, which made us all very sad. And he wrote an unbelievable letter, a letter from the Moscow jail in the Washington Post, which I urge everyone to read. It's literally the modern-day equivalent of Martin Luther King's letter from the Birmingham jail. He's talking optimistically about how it's all going to be okay in the end, how how Putin will be overthrown and how justice will prevail. It's, uh, it's amazing to read, and it's kind of sad and scary because I know what the Russians are capable of, and he's in the custody of the people who tried to kill him. Can we talk about you for a moment? And I very much
0: admire the respect and deference you give to these other people, some of whom have died, including your former lawyer. But you're in direct peril as well. You've had this ongoing feud with Vladimir Putin. Your lawyer was murdered. You were arrested on a red notice in Madrid and almost were whisked away to Moscow. There was this business between President Trump and Vladimir Putin at the Helsinki summit, in which there seemed to be an agreement to give you up to the Russians. And then finally, I wonder... If Vladimir Putin is so unhinged now, given the kinds of atrocities that he is overseeing and perhaps even ordering directly in Ukraine, that he cares even less about what he does to people who he perceives as his enemies, domestic
1: and foreign, do you feel that you're in more danger now, less or the same? Much more. So as I described before, he always had this one foot in the civilized world and one foot in the criminal world. And I think that that's ultimately what's kept me alive this last 12 years. The way he wanted to kill me was to get me back to Russia quotation marks around it legally. In other words, he wanted to or have me arrested on an Interpol notice or an extradition request and then have me sent back to Russia so they could kill me in their own plausibly deniable way in a prison. Of course, after you know pulling out all my fingernails to get some kind of forced confession to say that i I did all the crimes that they did. I think that that was his plan, and that's why they didn't blow up my house or poison me with Novichok in the last 12 years, because he always wanted to go to the Davos and and host the World Cup and all that kind of stuff. Now, he doesn't have any of that restraint. He's already been sanctioned right up to the edge of capability of sanctions. And so there's nothing stopping him from doing something terrible to me now. And and of course, I've got to be much more careful than I was before, because God knows what he's capable of doing without any restraints. And he's probably not a fan of the book and your press tour. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, he, he doesn't come out looking so good. Definitely not.
0: To the extent there can be anything you know, somewhat humorous in the fact that you're in peril, <laughs>
1: can you describe for folks who are not aware of what a honey trap is? In the early part of my story, when I was going around the world trying to get the Magnitsky Act passed in different countries, I had this one great opportunity, which was that parliamentarians from like, I don't know, 40 different countries were all meeting to discuss human rights at something called the OSCE Parliamentary Assembly, Organization of Security and Cooperation in Europe, as this hosts these different summits every year. And so I had an opportunity to meet with parliamentarians from all these different countries, and I had various contacts with different ones. And so I was going to show up at this place, this summit, and it was taking place in Monaco of all. Monaco is a member of the OSCE, as is all sorts of other countries. Normally, they're not in such salubrious places. Um, but in, in in 2012, it was in Monaco. And so I go to Monaco. And as part of my presentation to these parliamentarians, we made a little movie about a Russian gangster named Dmitry Kluyev, who's head of the Kluyev Organized Crime Group. He was the sort of criminal partner with the Russian government in stealing all the money that Sergei Magnitsky had discovered and was killed over. And so we, we made a movie, and we showed it to a bunch of parliamentarians and my big pitch to them was that there's no difference between organized crime and the government they're effectively merged and so after the movie i was invited by one of the parliamentarians that said there's a, a a party going on tonight hosted by the government of monaco at the le meridian hotel on the water why don't you come to the party and so i um, along with my associate a uh, young man named mark we um, we go to this party we walk in and and it's interesting because there's all sorts of Russians everywhere. Anyways, I, I go to the party, and and um, I line up at the table where they're serving this buffet, which is the, where the Monaco government had spared no expense and all sorts of fancy food. And I hadn't eaten all day, and I was pretty excited to have a big dinner. And and um, as I'm standing in line, I feel something bumping into my back. And um, I kind of move forward, so wh- whoever's bumping into my back has space. And, and then they're bumping into my back again. And I turn around, and I find this six-foot blonde model standing behind me. And she starts talking to me, and, and uh, she says, what are you here for? And I say, I'm well, here at this conference. And, and I said, what are you here for? And she said, well, um, normally I'm in fashion, but I think I find politics so interesting. And I thought, that's a bit weird. And and last thing I wanted to do was talk to a Russian after accusing the Russians of being merged with organized crime. I just wanted to like get away. But so um, I'm moving up, getting my food, and and then up walks a bunch of the parliamentarians from the uh, from the movie. They all start asking me questions, and this, this woman is sort of standing there as well. And at the end of this little conversation, they all ask me for my card. And so I start handing out my cards to all of them, and this woman sort of puts her hand out to grab one of my cards as well, and I gave her a card. So I, I finish my dinner, I go back to my hotel, and all of a sudden I get this uh, message from her saying, you know, Mr. William, you know, I thought we had such a big connection. It would be great to meet up. So I ignore it. And like half an hour later, another one comes in and says, I can't stop thinking about you. And I just have to laugh. I mean, you know, I'm five foot nine. I'm bald. I'm a middle-aged businessman. You know, this just doesn't. Yeah, you
0: wrote in the book, you write a list in the book and you say, you know, models don't throw themselves at me. I think you were being overly self-deprecating. I just want to say for the record, this could absolutely happen to you.
1: Well, it's it's nice of you to say so, but um, and, and it was funny because um, my I, I have a very famous libel lawyer named Jeffrey Robertson QC here in in the UK, and and I I had him read the book early on to make sure that I wasn't saying anything that that I could be sued for, and he read the whole book and he said it's it, it's totally watertight. There's only one one person who could sue you is maybe this uh, Svetlana because maybe she really did love you. <laughs> right. But you, be- it's your belief that she was a Russian agent. There's no, there's no question. She, it was a honey trap. That this is what a honey that's trap. That's the is. honey trap. Yes, that's and, a honey and trap. And you were a wise man who did not fall for the honey trap. I definitely didn't fall for it. And a lot of people do fall for these things, and lots of bad stuff happens. Absolutely. And did you immediately get the hell out of Dodge? So the, the very next morning, I, I woke up at the crack of dawn. I ordered a taxi, not the one sitting in front of the hotel, in the opposite direction of Nice Airport. It was too, too early, and make sure no one was following me. And then I turn around and go to Nice Airport and get the hell out of there because, and it turns out that Dmitry Kluyev and his crew were in in Monaco at the conference (laughs) with the intention of trying to overturn the Magnitsky Act.
0: That's a good segue because obviously some of the most important work you've done over the last number of years has been to get the Magnitsky Act passed, not just in the US, but in lots of places. So my question is do you think, I think the answer is obvious, but I'm just wondering, do you think that Russian aggression and the war in Ukraine will accelerate your
1: efforts in various countries? It's crazy how, I, I mean, I spent 10 years banging on closed doors. And, and I got a lot done, even with the doors closed. We got 34 countries to pass the Magnitsky Act. But it was really like pulling teeth. And then all of a sudden, in, in two weeks at the beginning of the war, everybody now... Everybody wants the Magnitsky Act. Everybody wants everything. And, and I mean, it's interesting. I was in Washington last week meeting with a number of senators and congressmen, and I pointed out they, – they said, well, how are we doing on sanctioning Magnitsky's killers? And I said, well, we, we've we sanctioned about 50 of them. But we have – there's 250 people who we have evidence were involved in either the false arrest, torture, murder of Magnitsky or or the crime he uncovered or the cover-up, which were all covered under the Magnitsky Act, that haven't been sanctioned. And these um, senators said, well, we want the list. We want the evidence. And just this weekend, they, they sent out a letter to the um, – President, Secretary of State, and Attorney General saying that here's the evidence of these 255 people, let's clean it up and sanction them. And this is just one of many conversations I'm having, not just about Magnitsky, but about the broader issues where now everything is possible where nothing was possible before because all restraint is off. There's no more appeasement, there's no apologists, it's now let's get tough on Russia, which which is a relief, but as I said at the beginning of our conversation, it's also infuriating that I spent all this time trying to tell everyone to do this, and and we might have avoided this terrible fate. In the United States, am I correct that the Magnitsky Act had to be reauthorized recently? It did, and we had a piece of legislation which, and it's not just for Russians; it's just, it's for all bad guys everywhere in the world, kleptocrats and and human rights violators, and it, it had a five year life and it needed to be reauthorized, and they had a vote in the House of Representatives. And it was something like 434 to eight to reauthorize a piece of legislation to freeze the assets and ban visas of human rights violators. So can you imagine there are eight members of the House of Representatives? yeah that voted well, let's against talk this? about let's talk about some of them. So uh, Lauren Bobbert from Colorado, Marjorie Taylor Green, Matt Getz. I can't even imagine how they can stand in front of their constituents and justify that. What is the justification they give? I don't know. I don't know. I mean there is no justification. this they're a Putin's party. I mean, people sometimes generalize and overgeneralize and say, well, there's Republicans that are supporting, you know, Putin. That's not true. I mean, there's a few crazies, but there's no daylight between Democrats and Republicans when it comes to, for the most part, when it comes to Putin, in my experience with with the Magnitsky Act. But these people, I mean, they have to be voted out. I have uh, a friend in in Colorado who's running against Lauren Bobbert, and he's my friend. And so I showed up at his campaign event, but I would have shown up at anyone's campaign event to lobby against Lauren Bobbert.
0: what's interesting is some of the people you mentioned, they're they're among the most widely recognized and famous members of Congress. And I sometimes wonder if part of it is not just that. And some of them are not on committee. I don't think that Marjorie Taylor Greene is even
1: on a committee anymore, but she's talked about all the time. It's, I mean, this is is a way to get attention is just do outrageous things. But um, my God, it's just... I just hope that in these people's districts that there's plenty of reasonable people in both parties that can be elected other than these, these people voting for Putin. I mean, it's just crazy.
0: Bill Browder, thanks once again for being on the show. It's a real honor to know you and to hear about your work. Congratulations on the book, Freezing Order, a true story of money laundering, murder, and surviving Vladimir Putin's wrath. Please be safe. Thank you. My conversation with Bill Browder continues for members of the Cafe Insider community. To try out the membership for just $1 for a month, head to cafe.com slash insider. Again, that's cafe.com slash insider. To end the show this week, I want to talk about a very important issue that plagues our country and should break your heart. I'm talking about the rise of hate crimes in America. And as a warning, some of the descriptions may be upsetting. Hate crimes have risen significantly across the country in recent years, as you may have heard. In October, the FBI released data showing that reports of hate crimes in the U.S. had reached the highest level in 12 years. And that's just from the data that the FBI was able to collect, which is incomplete, since not all local law enforcement agencies are even required to track and report hate crimes. There are, of course, high-profile hate crimes, like the murder of Ahmad Arbery, which we've spoken about on this show many times. A jury recently found the killer's guilty on all counts in a federal hate crimes trial. Of course, the defendants were already each convicted of murder in a Georgia state trial, and that's all good. We've seen ugly anti-Semitic attacks involving assaults on Jewish people in the streets of New York City, and swastikas painted on buildings and school buses. And according to a report prepared by the Human Rights Campaign— For trans and gender nonconforming people, 2021 was the deadliest year on record in the United States. We've witnessed an outbreak of anti Asian violence across the country, including a number of brutal attacks in New York City, which we've also discussed before. Anti Asian hate crimes in New York have increased by four times in the last year. Most recently, a 67 year old Asian woman was beaten and called anti Asian slurs. Another young woman was stabbed repeatedly. After the assailant followed her into her apartment in Chinatown. And just last week, we saw multiple violent attacks on members of the Sikh community, or the Sikh community, as people who practice the religion like my father say it. And there's evidence of a broader trend of hate crimes against Sikhs. In Richmond Hill, Queens, a neighborhood commonly referred to as Little Punjab, three Sikh men were brutally attacked on the same street within days of each other. At 45, 58, and 70 years old, all three men were assaulted and had their turbans ripped off. Two men were arrested in connection with the attacks, one 19 and one 20 years old. As reported by the New York Times, since the attacks, younger community members have actually begun escorting their elders to and from religious services in an effort to help protect them. Obviously, these attacks have really shaken up the Sikh community in the place they consider home, and it should shake everyone up. According to new data from the New York Police Department Hate Crimes Task Force, overall hate crimes have increased 76% this year, compared to the same period of time last year. Let me repeat that. 76%. And notably, the New York Police Department Hate Crimes Dashboard doesn't include a category for crimes targeting Sikhs specifically. So there's no way for the city to keep track of accurate data for certain demographic groups. The crimes are recorded under the general umbrella of anti religion. These crimes, I'm sure you will agree, are heinous and disgusting. They make my blood boil and my heart sink as an immigrant and a South Asian American, and just as a human being who cares about the well being of my fellow citizens. I wish the victims of these horrible crimes a speedy recovery, and to everyone, please look out for one another and be safe. Well, that's it for this episode of Stay Tuned. Thanks again to my guest, Bill Browder. If you like what we do, rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. Send me your questions about news, politics, and justice. Tweet them to me at preetbarara with the hashtag AskPreet. Or you can call and leave me a message at 669-247-7338 That's 669-24-PREET Or you can send an email to letters at com. Stay Tuned is presented by Cafe and the Vox Media Podcast Network The executive producer is Tamara Sepper The technical director is David Tattashore The senior producers are Adam Waller and Matthew Billy And the Cafe team is David Kurlander Sam Ozer, staten Noah Azalei, Nat Wiener, Jake Kaplan, Sean Walsh, and Namita Shah. Our music is by Andrew Doss. I'm your host, Preet Barara. Stay tuned.